Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Live from Los Angeles, the Win Without Competing Show with Dr. Arlene Barrow, career coach one and author of Win Without Competing. Now, here's Dr. Arlene. Thank you, Virgil. Welcome to my show. In tough economic times, it is especially important to implement my right fit method, which will enable you to win without competing in your career and in your life. Listen to learn about my right fit method from my guest interviews. My guest today is independent filmmaker Edward Landler, known for his feature documentary, I Build the Tower. Leonard Malton of Entertainment Tonight said, a heartfelt and fascinating film, a real discovery, entertaining and illuminating. This film about the Watts Towers was showcased at Hollywood's Egyptian Theater, New York City's Modern Museum of Art, and Washington, D.C.'s National Gallery of Art. Passionate about the power of telling stories with pictures, Landler has worked on movies in three continents and was founding member and one-time president of Film Independent which created the Independent Spirit Awards. Ed, tell us about your childhood and how your passion for filmmaking began. Uh, Hello, Arlene. Hello, Uh, Ed. Oh, I'm glad. I just wanted to make sure you were hearing me all right. Uh, My childhood, well, I, I had... A, a, I grew up in a, in, in a Hungarian Jewish household in the San Fernando Valley, and uh, I read a lot. I loved stories, and um, I, the, when I watched television, mainly what I would always watch is the old was the old movies, and I learned so much about how to tell a story with pictures from so many of these movies, which we realize. Over the years, we realized these are these are treasures, and without even knowing what I was looking at way back then, uh, I was getting quite an education in in the power of uh, of stories to tell pictures uh, pictures to tell stories. Do you remember any of your favorites? Oh gosh, I think well, I, frankly, you know, from from my earliest time, um, I think you know when when I was very young, I I loved the old movie Gunga Din. Uh, which which may have have led to my desire to to go to India, although of course uh, th- that wonderful boy's life adventure kind of movie has very little to do with real India, but it certainly uh, it, uh, excited me. I loved uh, Charlie Chaplin. I uh, was enthralled by by Hitchcock's films. Um, you know, it's just so, so many things, uh, and so, so many things uh, that a lot of people haven't heard of that that uh, I, I find are still you know wonderful little treasures. A wonderful film from 1935 called Peter Ibbotson, which has the most evocative dream imagery of of any film uh, uh, from 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 any continent, from any from any country. It starred uh, Gary Cooper and Anne Harding. In terms of your family, can you give us some information and give us a feeling as to what your home environment was like? What did your parents do? I know you had a brother. Yeah, well, I know it, your it was, parents came from another country. So if you could tell us about that, that would be wonderful. Well, I think you know my parents, having having grown up in Europe, uh, you know between the between the two wars, they had a very realistic view of. Of how hard life could be, but yeah, they got were very well educated, and we had a home full of books, and uh, and they of course realized the importance of of family, and and over and everything else with, with the center of the family, and I think the center of all societies the, is, is an unconditional love. Uh, they really taught me uh, the depth of 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 feeling and how important that is, and not not that you know 
they would have articulated it then. It was just, you know, coming out from in the day to day. Um, and it was a home filled with books and uh, a home filled with uh, encouragement, encouragement of our, uh, uh, of our ideas and of our imagination. Did your parents have any career in mind for you, or they just motivated you to do what you wanted to do? I know that you started making films when you were growing up. Mm-hmm. How did they respond to all of that? Well, my father was a mechanical engineer, and so uh, he, he saw my interest as something about putting, putting pieces together. He saw, and my mother was a social worker. She worked for years with the Los Angeles County Bureau of Adoptions, and um, I don't think I don't think they had any specific idea of you know what he would. I mean, they had ideas of you know where where my leanings were, but they they did allow me to uh, to, to go in my own direction, and and they supported me in in that. Tell us about the kinds of films you made as you were growing up, and how did you get the ideas for them? Oh well, you know it was. My 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 first the first film that I made is a, a, about oh fifteen or twenty minutes long, uh, just to see if I could do it. Uh, you know, a friend of mine had a sixteen millimeter camera, and uh, uh, w- when I was young, I I, I uh, there was a period of time I loved the Sherlock Holmes stories, so I did a sort of a takeoff on a Sherlock Sherlock Holmes uh, uh, story, uh, the study in black and white. Rather than this, the Sherlockian study in Scarlet, and um, uh, you know, I didn't, I, I wasn't making it to have any kind of depth. I just was seeing, wow, could I, could I make a story which people would enjoy watching and not get bored, and could follow what was going on? And I shot that in oh my my senior year of high school, and then when I went to college, I had there was equipment there that I could edit the film there in my freshman during my freshman year of college. You were fortunate enough to go to Yale University. Yes, I, I was indeed. I went on a scholarship, and uh, yeah, it, that that certainly was a major major change after after uh, growing up in Southern California. You majored in literature and film. Tell Eventually. us about. The experimental five-year program and your adventure in Calcutta. Yeah, well, uh, in my sophomore year, I applied for uh, the, the experimental five-year BA program, uh, which was it only lasted for about five or six years. And uh, over those five or six years, each year, I think maybe twelve to fifteen uh, students were chosen, and the Carnegie Foundation paid. Uh, paid a number of the expenses involved, mainly transportation. The idea was uh, that these uh, uh, students would take off for a year, in between sophomore and junior year, take off for a full year. So that made it the five-year BA. But they had to go uh, outside the country and live and work in a non-Western culture. So while Carnegie Foundation paid for our transportation, we were responsible to find ourselves jobs somewhere in the non-Western world. And I've, of course, well, as I mentioned, Gunga Din, uh, well, I guess from a young age, I was always fascinated uh, by Indian culture. And, and I learned enough to know that uh, the Hollywood version was not, was, was not all that attuned to, to what reality was. So I figured if there was some place in the world I could go to see what the world was really like, how different from Western culture it surely would be India. And I found myself a job as a documentary scriptwriter for an agency called the Ecumenical Urban Institute in Calcutta, which was sponsored by the Global Board of Methodist Ministries. In fact, they would introduce me as their, their, uh, proudly as their Jewish Methodist missionary. <laughs> well, it wasn't, well, it wasn't missionary did, work. It was, I was certainly you, working for the Methodist Church. How did you pitch yourself to get the job? Because that's what our listeners, I think, would be curious about, too, um, recognizing that you weren't of the same faith, you were in a different country, and lo and behold, suddenly you became a minister. So how well, I, I, well, as I say, it, I was I was part of the ministry, but, right, I was, but, but essentially my script writing was to write scripts about social service organizations in Calcutta. Right, but, but, but I 
I went to the church because uh, uh, in my sophomore year, after I'd been accepted, I started figuring out, well, how do I find a job in India? Right. Uh, I wrote to a number of, of, of schools. I know some other people who had gone to India from Yale, from the five-year BA, had wound up teaching uh, in, uh, in schools for Westerners there. I think I wanted something a little bit more close to, to, to the Indian culture itself. And I met a man, a wonderful man, named Mark Jurgensmeyer, who was based in Stanford, who had spent a lot of time in India, and he is, uh, was a, a, a follower of the Gandhian philosophy, which, uh, uh, and in fact, he's written a number of books about how to use uh, the, the methods of, of, of what Gandhi did to achieve independence for India in, in our day-to-day work, in trying to find agreement uh, where apparently is, there is conflict. And he suggested that I go to a great big building in New York City uh, the, uh, uh, on Riverside Drive, the United Church Foundation. He suggested, you know, go to the Presbyterians, go to the Methodists, go to all these different places which have some kind of uh, you know, situation there in India and tell them what you want to do. Tell them who you are. And, I, uh, and someone... Uh, it, it's the uh, United Glo- the Global Board of the uh, United Methodist Ministries, who happened to have been a Yale graduate years before, uh, was quite intrigued by the program, and uh, and he liked me, and he liked, you know, the, the things I was looking for, and um, actually originally. Uh, I was supposed to go out in in, the, in a remote, fairly remote part of India, in the state of Bihar, uh, to teach the Methodist school. But when I got to Calcutta, the the Methodist bishop there said the people who were at the school had no idea what to make of me. So I really, uh, they didn't want me to come there. Well, which, could you could you um, let's explore what you just said? Yeah. Uh, what do you mean they had no idea what to make of you? Well. Uh, all they knew was here was this new teacher coming, and these were, you know, real missionaries who had been there for 15 right. or 20 years, and just the idea of a student taking a year off from Yale, and apparently, apparently, uh, they were uh, they were uh, 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 women who also perhaps. I can't say for sure. Perhaps were were apprehensive about a a, a 19 year old young man showing up. I have no idea. Uh, all I know is the bishop said uh, they, they really don't want you out there. However, the bishop suggested that there in Calcutta, there's this agency called the Ecumenical Urban Institute, which was run by a gentleman named Joel Underwood, who was a Methodist minister, but who had gone on after he left India uh, for years. He was executive director of a uh, 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 international uh, uh, organization concerned with hunger called Bread for the World, and a wonderful man, and uh, he uh, spoke to me, and uh, and and he, he loved my interest in film. Actually, it was, he, he was the one who came up with the idea, well, you're here, we have social service organizations that need documentation, why don't you write about them with an eye towards uh, making them into documentary films, and uh, he had connections with other with the uh, Metropolitan Planning Organization of Calcutta, who said might have funding to actually produce uh, uh, some of these films. uh, By the time I left Calcutta, I mean, uh, they had some of my scripts, and they might have produced something that I'd written, you know, perhaps the year after I left. I'm not sure. But really, I I, uh, am grateful for Mr. Underwood's understanding. Right. Uh, I wanted to explore more about the concept of you fitting into a new environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, after all, in the first situation, you didn't stay because they weren't comfortable, correct? Well, I never got out there. They didn't even know who. All they knew oh, was they I never was, met you. They never even met. Oh, oh, they just they just sight unseen said they don't want you. Yeah, ah, and and it's very okay. curious that 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 you know the word did not get back to the United States before I left. <laughs> That's the way it I happened. I see. Ah, because I, I I wasn't clear on that. Yeah. So they didn't know you, and then they sort of rejected you out of hand. Absolutely. In the, in the second situation, how did you fit in there? Well, uh, uh, there. 
it worked out very well because essentially uh, to, uh, I was responsible for documentation, which meant I would have to go out and really learn. I would have to go and 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 learn about how Calcutta worked as a city. I would have to go to the to the, uh, uh, the a number of the different social service organizations that were, did not just represent uh, various churches, but also represented uh, uh, quasi-governmental agencies in India. Um, and so I saw how in in a city widely regarded, certainly at that time, if not and still now, as one of the one of the cities with, with, with one of the greatest among the worst problems in the world. It was interesting to see how these problems were being uh, evaluated by all these different uh, social service organizations. But of course, I had to learn. Uh, uh, you know, there, there is such a thing as culture shock. I had no idea what what to expect. I mean, I had been learning. I've been yeah, reading about. Yeah, that's what about, I'm getting at. Because yeah. I lived in Israel for a year, mm-hmm. and it was really culture shock. I, a oh, friend yeah. of mine had warned me beforehand, and I didn't believe it. You don't realize how a different culture can affect you. So, um, when you went to visit with people. Did you have to make them comfortable with you? I guess perhaps, but I didn't. I really wasn't thinking that. I, I was only 19 years old, and I really wasn't that thinking that far ahead. I mean, really, the first time that for any length of time I was away from my parents was when in my first two years at, at college, and here. Uh, and and my parents were worried about my going into such a foreign foreign culture, uh, but you know how else was I to learn? Uh, and I found that um, uh, people were very open to me. They they wanted to introduce me to their lives. They wanted me to introduce me to their city, to their culture. And I I was I was a sponge. I just I just absorbed i was just trying to absorb so many things uh so many things which uh uh were so amazing to me i mean in the streets of calcutta i mean this and the, the number of homeless on the streets of calcutta uh number easily into the hundreds of thousands if not into the millions even at that time calcutta was an, a metropolitan area of of over 8 million people uh, and, a, and a very small metropolitan, relatively small as well. And to see on the streets, just out there in front of me on the streets of Calcutta, every every aspect, every facet of human life from birth to death and everything in between, uh, right out out there in the open because this is where so many people lived, um, was uh, you know uh, a, a great deal that I had to digest. <laughs> And it ha- yes. Uh, yeah. If you could share with us, because I know our listeners will be interested in the impact of India on your work. I know that there was someone that you had met there that was an important oh, mentor in your life. Yes. Well, first of all, I you know uh, even even before meeting this great mentor. Uh, you know, I knew going to India that, and one of the reasons I went to India, I knew I wanted to tell stories. In India, seeing so much of reality, and so uh, you know, I realized, wow, everything I have been, I have learned up till now in the United States from Western through Western culture, through my parents, through schools, and everything. You know, it doesn't explain this. There's a whole other angle, a whole other perspective. I realized I had to. I had to grow a great deal to see how all these things, how so many contradictory things do fit together and are perhaps not contradictions. And uh, to help me with that, I had the great fortune to meet uh, one of the world's great filmmakers, uh, an Indian uh, filmmaker, Bengali filmmaker. This, Of course, Calcutta is in the, the state of Bengal, West Bengal in India, um, named Satyajit Ray, who had... Uh, was already world famous then. His his earliest films, uh, Patra Panchali, Aparajito, and The World of Apu, which has come to be known as the Apu Trilogy, uh, uh, was uh, extremely popular in this country. And of course, I was familiar, you know, with those films and and a few of his other films. 
and uh, I was most fortunate in that you know I I, I, uh, I, I met him at a screening of a uh, a rough cut of one film he was still editing, and I uh, asked if I could I you know I told him that. I wanted to be a filmmaker. I was here, on, uh, you know, as a Yale as a, as a student from Yale, an undergraduate, and he was very open. He said, "Well, look, you know, he, uh, my number's in the phone book. Just give me a call and come on over," which I did. And I would go over to his home uh, where he was finishing editing one film. He was writing the script for his next film, and I would go over there at least, perhaps once every two weeks, perhaps more often. And we had a a running running conversation. Uh, I, I, he, he he taught me how to think in terms of film, how to tell pictures through this medium. He would show me the script he was writing, and it was a mix of words and pictures. He drew he drew frames. He drew sketches of how he envisioned these things to be shot and camera movements as he was writing the script. You cannot separate the conceptualization of a film from the visualization. Uh, it's, it's not enough just to think up the words that the people say. These people live within an environment. And uh, I learned so much uh, just being in India about, you know, what an environment means. <laughs> but yes, he was very kind to me. And then when he went on location uh, to shoot the, the, the film that he had been writing, it's called Days and Nights in the Forest, uh, I was able to, uh, you know, join uh, join the production company and, uh, and observe the production. Let's forward, I should say, fast forward okay. to the Watts Towers. Okay. It took Simon Rodia 33 years to build the Watts Towers. Who is well, Rodia? Rodia, actually, it probably only took him about 20 years, but he lived there for 33 years, and he kept he kept working on it. He kept puttering. He kept changing little things here and there. But essentially, he had it done inside of 20 years, which is even more amazing, cause considering he built it all by himself. Could you explain about his career? Why did he come to this country? I know he came from Italy. He was a peasant. He came from uh, a remote part at that, uh, in, in that time, at the end of the 19th century. He came from a remote part of the province of Campania. Uh, it's about maybe 40 or 50 miles east of Naples. But given the roads of that time, uh, that was, you know, in some ways, years away. Uh, he was still, in some ways uh, living in, in his little town of Sereno, where his, fa- his family owned a little property, was uh, living a very rural, isolated life. He came to this country when he was 14 years old. He, doesn't, he, he said himself, uh, you know, as, as an old man in, in the number of uh, uh, audio tape interviews that were made, uh, and some of these interviews we use in our film, he said, you know, I don't know why my parents sent me to America. I didn't want to come. He didn't want to be torn away from his home. But his parents sent him uh, apparently because of military conscription. They didn't want him to go in the army and and get killed fighting, you know, colonial wars for Italy and Africa. He had an older brother who was in the minefields, coal minefields of Pennsylvania, and Radia joined him. And but it was a, a dirt poor. I mean, really, a, 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 an existence of poverty and a great deal of prejudice as as a as an immigrant from Southern Europe, from Italy. Uh, he, he never lost his thick accent. When his brother was killed in a mining accident, uh, oh, I think in the 1890s, and he and I think Rodia was still in his teens. He went to Seattle. There was an Italian farming community there. He lived there for a few years. He married there and then went to San Francisco in the first decade of the 20th century, in the 1900s. Uh, there was, a, of course, an Italian community there. Uh, but unlike someone like you know, uh, Giannini, who, who, who built up the Bank of America, uh, Radia, well, Radia worked in construction and... Uh, and and found was only frustrated. I think I think uh, well I think he was a man of great genius, but no, with no education he 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 felt 
always stifled by the kind of, 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 of labor he had to do. He became an alcoholic. He, he had three children, and then, and this, you know, for an Italian family, my God, he abandoned his family in 1910. He disappeared off the face of the earth, uh, and he did not reappear until about 1918 here in Southern California. Uh, during that time he was missing, he was, he was a hobo. He freeloaded all over uh, on, on, he, on the, riding the rails into Central America, into South America perhaps, all over the United States. But when he came back, when he settled in Los Angeles, he, he quit drinking. And he started building things wherever he lived. He started building things in his backyard. There was something coming out of him. I, I think I do believe as someone brought up you know, in an Italian Catholic home, I think he, he felt terrible about, you know, his, you know, abandoning his family, but he couldn't go back there. And um, he, uh, he started working regularly, I mean, all through the 20s and 30s and into the 40s. He worked as a mason, as a tile setter for contracting companies. He was highly valued as a highly skilled worker. And yet, working dawn to dusk, on a regular job, making money from not, you know, from, uh, you know, for all these years. During early in that time, somewhere in the early 20s, he got an idea. He wanted to build something big, and that's all the only way he could articulate it to himself. But he saw something in his mind that he wanted to build. He searched all over Los Angeles to find the right site. He wanted a triangular piece of property to build this large monument that he, I think already he saw in his mind it was going to be spires, it was going to be shaped like a ship. Uh, and in his spare time, through the 20s, the 30s, and into the 40s, he, in his backyard, along the side of the Southern Pacific Railroad line, and down the street from the old Los Angeles red car line, uh, he built these magnificent towers, this steel rebar it was steel rods packed in cement and covered with the most beautiful mosaic uh, in the tradition of Italian broken tile mosaic. But he used so many different things, not just, not just tile, but glass and broken cups and rocks and marbles and everything you could find and uh, creating uh, a, a, a structure uh, superb in its engineering, although he never went to engineering school, and absolutely superb in its aesthetic, just you know how all of the mosaic fits together and how over this very large, beautiful monument, uh, there's a resonance and a harmony that uh, if anyone who's ever been to the Watchtowers, there is, there is something deeply felt uh, that everyone feels when they see that and go into the side of the towers. How do you know that he searched for the right fit house? And how do you know the, that he had a plan to create the towers? What research did you do? Well, part of, that, part, of, part of that comes from some of these audio interviews, and a good deal of it comes from his family. Uh, my partner in this project was Radia's great-nephew, and as he was growing up, he got all the stories and he even remembers, as a small boy, he remembers Radia still being alive. But he remembers uh, you know, all the things that the family was saying, that his grandmother was saying about her brother. Um, we also, and we corroborated so many of the stories we heard from the family through public record. There was a time in the early 20s where he had, uh, he actually had, had deeds for, uh, and options to buy perhaps two or three different properties before he settled on uh, the property in Watts. And so he was very particular then. He really wanted the right fit to do absolutely. what he and in had fact, in mind. One, one story that appears in the movie that I am sure is true, uh, it, it, we got it from a number of uh, two different sources. Um, he said that he had the choice in 1921. He had two perfect properties in mind. He, the, the site on 107th Street, it was then called, I think, Robin Street in Watts, uh, triangular property, and the red car line was just down the street, and it was right by the Southern Pacific Line and, and very near the, the old Southern Pacific Roundhouse. Uh, Watts was called the hub 
it was a, a prosperous working class community. He could have bought, at that time, he, he had the choice between that site, which he eventually bought. The other site he could have bought is now the corner of Wilshire Boulevard and Santa Monica Boulevard in Beverly Hills, where the Beverly Hilton sits. Well, but, that would have been a wonderful place to put it. Well, it's quite lucky he didn't. He, the reason he decided against Beverly Hills, even though there was the red car line running right o- along that property, and he just decided what it would have been worth today if he had put it there. Indeed. Well, I don't know if he would have benefited from it because when he, he the reason he did bought in Watts is back in 1921 there was nothing in Beverly Hills. He said, "I'm going to build it where the people are." He could not see the people moving into Beverly Hills. And frankly, uh, Beverly Hills, I believe, started being developed in a big way in 1927, 1928. Believe me, when Louis B. Mayer or Mary Pickford or Douglas Fairbanks or all these rich Hollywood stars are starting to build their mansions, I have a feeling that this working-class Italian building, this strange stuff, uh, I think he would have been probably forced off of his property for not very much money. And by that time, I think he, he would have already been in his 50s, and he would have been too old to start over again. In Watts, he was, it's where there was a working-class community, and they didn't care. He was just another, another guy from somewhere else like us. I mean, in Watts, there were Portuguese, there were Italians, there were African-Americans, there were Chinese and Japanese. It was a real polyglot community. And, uh, you know, I, I seriously believe that he would have been uh, thrown off his property if he had bought that property in Beverly Hills. And he, did not for, he didn't foresee Los Angeles growing out that way. He thought it was growing down towards Long Beach. I think it's amazing how he systematically figured out the right property. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, obviously he was very intelligent. Absolutely, and he very systematically worked out how the towers would be built. It's amazing. Uh, why are the Watts Towers considered a work of art? Well, uh, as Buckminster Fuller, the, the man who invented the geodesic dome, the great designer and, and a, a great prophet of our time, if, uh, I feel, Buckminster Fuller, in our film, uh, we filmed the last filmed interview with Fuller three months before his death. He does a full structural analysis of the towers. He considers it one of the great uh, works of architecture sculpture. In terms of architecture, it is an engineering masterpiece. The tallest of the towers is just a few inches shy of 100 feet. That's, a ten, that's the height of a 10-story building almost. But the foundation of the entire site of of all the three towers and the gazebo and everything else in this triangular uh, uh, ship-shaped monument, the ship-shaped site, Uh, the foundation of this entire structure is only 14 inches. Uh, How can something so tall be so so stable? And Fuller uh, considered it one of the most stable structures, not because of the strength of the materials, but because of the engineering. Everything in the towers is based on the triangle. Mr. Fuller says he learned his engineering from nature. He observed how trees grow and how flowers grew. He observed how crystals are formed, how rocks break. He saw that, uh, and as, as Buckminster Fuller has uh, written a great deal about, there, there are just you know three, three basic forms in uh, architectural forms that you find in in nature, and they're all based on the triangle. And every with a triangle, when one leg is up against another leg, you put pressure on it. Every leg always supports the other leg. So as these towers rise, it is a system of triangles so that every leg is supported, so that it could have just like a tall tree could have shallow roots, but still. Uh, maintain equilibrium and stability. That's on the technical side. On the aesthetic side, uh, it is unlike a great deal of so-called vernacular art, so-called folk art, where people, you know, who have some artistic uh, skill and talent, uh, they don't plan it out. 
they they make pretty things. They they accumulate things and just st- stack things on top of each other, uh, perhaps around one theme. Rodia had her whole vision. When you look at these towers from the distance, it looks like a great three-masted ship. Um, the he's very careful about what kind of mosaic he puts where. Uh, that and there, 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 there is a harmony. There's balances. You know, if there's if there are uh, if there's green glass somewhere in one part. There is a matching kind of green glass in another part. There's there's a harmony, a balance as you walk around these towers. You get um, so many different aspects of how how this thing grew. Uh, and how we grow, how human beings. It, here you have such. Uh, there's so many di- different directions I can explain this, but uh, I think the feeling that comes to people when they see this here is steel and cement. It is heavy. This all the all of these things weigh tons and tons and tons accumulated, and yet, in some ways, it's like when one sees the Taj Mahal or one sees the stained glass windows, uh, the rose windows in Chartres or, or Saint-Chapelle in Paris, from this heavy material you get such a sense of lightness. It seems to just rise up lightly in the air. It's reaching for the sky, and I think it reflects. And it, it is it, it, not that Rodia could articulate this in words himself, but it does reflect how human, humankind, humanity has risen from the mud, from the dross, from the heaviness, and is always seeking something better, is always looking out toward the sun, just like flowers grow towards the sun and turn, turn their face to the sun. So these, these, these towers, like flowers, you know, turn their face to the sun. Uh, turning, it's pointed, the whole ship, the, all, the entire structure is paint, pointed towards the east. So we're sailing east to the sunrise, perhaps back to Italy, where Rodia came from. I think that anyone who sees the towers and, and, and looks at them, um, they'll see why it's considered a, a work of art. Although many people have considered it uh, just an accumulation of junk. Um, I think that's why did you want to make the film, I Build the Tower? Well, uh, the project started, I had uh, just finished, this was in the early 80s, this is perhaps you know, 12, 13 years you know, after I'd been in India uh, and gone through a good many other experiences. But in, the late, in 1979, 1980, I became uh, very much involved in the Watts community. I was uh, completed a short film, I guess, in 1982, uh, where I intercut. I, I had a 16-millimeter Bolex with me in Calcutta, and I shot a great deal of footage in Calcutta, and I'd always been intending to make a film uh, shooting uh, an equivalent amount of footage in another city and cutting the two cities together, showing that no matter what culture, I wanted to show an American city and this Indian city in juxtaposition to show no matter what the superficial cultural or even the deeper cultural differences between these two cities, um, there was something common and universal in human needs and human concerns of people living together in a city. And I became involved with a group that was opening the first food co-op in Watts. And to commemorate the opening of this food co-op, I made this short film, uh, Intercutting, Calcutta and Los Angeles, and using the towers themselves as a metaphor of this idea of the of the universality of of human needs and values. And uh, while I was finishing this up, and I was involved with the Watts Towers Art Center, uh, into the art center walks this fellow Brad Beyer, who is the great nephew of Rodia, and he says, "You know, I've just been spending the last three or four years doing going all over the country." following the tracks of my great uncle, trying to dig up everything I can about his life, because the, the story they tell about him isn't the real story. Nobody knows all this stuff. And I think it would make a great documentary film. But I want to work with somebody who knows something about filmmaking. And we got together and talked. He looked at my work. Uh, I think he spoke to a number of other filmmakers as well. But the the way of approaching this story uh, uh, the way my ideas of approaching it, his ideas of approaching it, seemed to jibe, and we decided to work together.
Okay, so there was a match. You had the right fit. Yeah, and guess... also the story itself was something that intrigued me. You know, why, how, how, what is it that motivates any human being to create something? It's really the story of, of, of the importance of art and why it exists. Going further, uh, you spent 20 years, or more than 20 years, creating I Build the Tower. Yes, I did. Uh, did you anticipate that it would take that long, and why did it take that long? Well, I thought it would maybe take five or six years. Uh, I thought the fundraising would be the hardest, and that's one of the reasons it took so long. It was much harder than I thought. I thought, you know, the Watts Towers, Los Angeles, of course people would want to see the real story. Um, but while the, the towers get a great deal of lip service in the city, um, People are also a little bit afraid of it. I mean, in, in, a, in a city that is so devoted to uh, uh, to popular entertainment that makes a lot of money, uh, they couldn't understand. Well, number one, this is in Watts, the Watts of 1965 Watts riots. The, it, it is the wrong part of town. People didn't want to go there to see this great work of art. Um, and Radia himself, but he was an uneducated man. He was just an ordinary worker. How could he has no pedigree? How could he make great art? So, despite the lip service, um, there was hesitation. Actually, the the first major amounts of money that came into the project was after six years of working at at, at putting together the story and uh, and trying to raise the money. We got a uh, a major grant from the National Endowment for the Arts and then a, a sizable sum also from Olivetti in Italy. So the first major funding for this came from outside of Los Angeles. But that helped, that became a catalyst for, uh, uh, for getting more money. By this time, we're in the early 90s. Over the, between 1990 and 95, we shot uh, all our interviews and gathered a good deal of other material, documentary, uh, documentation, uh, visuals, stills, historic stills, uh, many other things. But we could not shoot the towers themselves because they were under scaffolding uh, because of a, a conservation project, a restoration project that the city had gotten money for. And actually, uh, it was the earthquake of 1994 that helped us uh, film the towers because while it really didn't hurt the towers, I mean, those towers, while Rodeo was building them, uh, the Great Long Beach earthquake in 1932 or 33 occurred, and uh, you know it was much closer to the epicenter of, of that quake than than the Northridge quake in '94. And he learned from that better how to ah you know to keep uh, to to for, for his his structure to be supported under such strain, and it survived the 1933 quake. And they really, uh, the towers were really not harmed in the 94 quake, but the scaffolding on the towers was harmed. The scaffolding on the towers was so shaken up that they had to take it down, and that gave us a window of opportunity to do our wonderful crane shots uh, of the towers, unencumbered by uh, the restoration. And then after all that was done, um, comes the editing process and running out of money and over the late 90s and early part of uh, uh, to, from 2001 to 2005, about every six months to or so, we would do fundraising screenings of part of the rough cut and uh, showing what we shot and gathering small, just small audiences. And you know, uh, each one of these little uh, little screenings was able to raise anywhere from five to ten thousand dollars. Uh, depending on the the, the generosity of uh, of uh, of those we were approaching, who took the primary role in terms of managing the process? You know, who took charge actually of the whole endeavor um, in terms of the fundraising? Was it a joint effort? It was pretty much. It was pretty much a joint effort. It was a joint effort. Yeah. Okay, because sometimes one person does one thing, one does another. I was curious how all that worked. Well, you know, uh, after working on something for 20 years and working so closely, you know, in, in the end, uh, you know, we, uh, and I have no problem, I certainly had no problem with this, you know, we uh, uh, 
Brad and I, you know, take equal credit, you know, as as co-writers, co-producers, co-directors. Okay. But also in terms of the fundraising as well, because that's, for some people, not a pleasant task. And quite often may not necessarily be a pleasant task for a creative. Um. Well, if if I guess I were better at it, maybe it would have wouldn't have taken so. Long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was trying to get at the extent to which you enjoyed raising money as you were trying to make the film. Because it's I, clear. I, frankly, frankly, I I'd rather just make the film. <laughs> yes. But, well, that's what I thought. I mean, it's very clear that your passion propelled you to success in times of adversity here. So that's why I brought up that question. But it was also a matter, I think, uh, of importance that um, uh, if, if, if any donor felt that they should have some kind of say about how the film should be presented, well, we, we, we didn't take kindly to that. We really wanted, we, we wanted to make, we wanted the, the, the story that was there to tell itself. And, and of course, we, we consulted with a lot of people ran the rough cut, uh, you know, uh, over these, uh, and got comments and input from a good number of people. But it was ultimately our decision every step of the way. At that's what, the meaning of independence. That's exactly right. At what point in your life did you decide to compete with yourself and not against others to win without competing? Well, I don't know if it was ever a matter of decision. It's just the way I always have been. You know, I, I don't know if it's a matter of competing with myself. It's just a matter of, well, this is what I want to do. Let's see how good I can make it. Uh, right. Never... Well, you raised the bar. Am I correct, Dad? Perhaps. Maybe the bar was, was, was pretty high to begin with, and maybe that's why it takes so, me so long to get some of my projects done. <laughs> I don't know. But I felt that uh, – I've always felt that uh, – well, do you uh, believe that the film that you made as a teenager uh, is the same caliber as the film I Build the Tower? Oh no, that's of course what I'm not. getting at. No, no of course not. That's I right. I was just learning, and also I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I, I, I was, I, I was young. I did not know as much as I learned. I mean, you know, look, look, I, I, I it's, it's a work of a child, uh, and. Uh, when uh, as the guy says, you know, as, when uh, uh, when we are children, we we act and see as children, but we grow up. Um, I, uh, I I hope that what I have learned through my experience in the real world, and not just in filmmaking, but in I, I've had uh, a great deal of, of work experience in a lot of different areas because I felt I had to go through this. I had to understand this in order to make my work richer. But that's what enabled you to become better and better at your craft. I would, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And that's, that's what, and I guess then that is what I realized when I was in India, that I, that I had a great deal of experience to take in, to understand all this this new world that I was seeing, and and to and uh, to come to the point where I could say, okay, my stories are clear, and and they they are will come out as as they are supposed to, because I'm seeing them clearly. If um, you had taken on the project today. Would you have done what you did when you started doing this 20 years ago? You know, that's really, you know, every, I think everything in our lives comes at the time it's supposed to be done. And there's some things... Uh, no, I I'm, guess I, I meant about the quality of it. Would you have done it differently, the actual filmmaking itself? I don't think so, no. Ah, no, no. that's very I, good. Yeah. I think I think it, uh, you know I look at it I have you know a quibble here a quibble there every once in a while but in general uh overall I think I think it is an accomplished piece of work and I'm I I am uh I you know I think it's worth seeing and a great many people uh, seem to agree with me No that's good cuz that's how I feel about my book Win Without Competing where I present the right fit method uh, when I look at it, I don't feel that I would have done it any differently, whether it's today or next year or whatever. Going further, many people define success for themselves according to the amount of money they make. You do not. How do you define success for yourself? 
I guess, to a certain extent, it's it's waking up in the morning or and looking yourself in the mirror or, or going to sleep at night, looking yourself in the mirror and say, okay, you know, I have not, I have not in purposefully, intentionally, intentionally uh, uh, hurt anyone else, <laughs> and I have proceeded. I have, uh, I have done something to bring, bring myself closer to the things I want to get done. I have learned something uh, that will help me, and. And, and and but it's very important. It is important to me that that uh, you know our our jobs in this our, all our jobs our, our responsibility in this life is is to cultivate gardens. It is to create. Destruction takes care of itself. Uh, perhaps that's you know why I you know I think competition can be a good thing within an overall cooperative framework. But uh, I think human community human community. Existed long before there was ever money, and it uh, and money money is just a token that stands for, uh, uh, well, it, it, it's 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 taken on a great many different meanings, but essentially it's uh, you you get this token to stand for uh, some some amount of of work, something you have done within your community that you are recognized for, so that you can take this token and trade it for something that will help you live. Uh, when you look at it that way, your job is to uh, to add to the process of creation, and that's that's what I hope I'm doing from day to day. And if and if and if other people uh, find that they must hurt other people and uh, in, in order to get ahead for themselves, well, that's their problem. <laughs> I don't want to get sucked into that. What are you currently creating? What am I currently creating? I well, another long-term project is a uh, is a cultural history of the movies. I'm also something of a film historian, and uh, and I think that uh, to look at the films of the last hundred years that in, that where the, the last hundred years that film as an art form has really existed, you see both a reflection of what's happened in the world. A reflection and, an, and the movies themselves are an influence on how we, we see the world. I mean, stories, going all the way back to the cave paintings, stories are the way we understand the reality around us. We make up stories to organize all these disparate things around us so we can make sense out of our lives. And I think you can make sense of this crazy last century by really looking at the movies and seeing what they say about us and, uh, and how it's influenced uh, both good things and some very bad things as well, and I and that's this story that movies tell is one of one of the things creatively that I'm working on. There are a number of also a number of uh, stories which I would like to make into movies uh, that are in uh, uh, various levels of, of of composition in the drawer, but a few of them are are essentially done, and I'm looking to uh, raising money to uh, make the lowest budget script that I have in the drawer uh, a, a reality and possibility. What career advice do you have for our listeners? Well, I don't know if it's a matter of career advice or so much uh, rather as, as, uh, as, as, uh, as advice in life. I mean, I, is that, uh, as I was saying before, cultivate your gardens. And by me, what I mean by that is we, each and every one of us, from the get-go, from, from the moment we are born, but from the moment we become aware, we know if, if we don't live in situations that keeps us from trying to realize this, we know that we have some kind of skill, some kind of talent that we must cultivate and grow. And it's that skill, that talent, which will see us through our lives, which will be appreciated and welcomed and, and, and be paid for by, by the people of our society, of our community. But we, it's just a matter of seeing, seeing clearly what, what you are capable of and uh, well, like the, the the great mythology scholar uh, Joseph Campbell would say, you know, follow your bliss, 
follow what makes you happy, uh, because that that you know if if you find yourself involved working at things, working on something that really gives you a satisfaction, you know that probably has something to do with the direction of where you should spend your life. Uh, Thank you for joining me today, Ed. You're very welcome, Arlene. I enjoyed. Uh, being with you. It was a delightful conversation, and I'm thrilled that you were able to share two career stories, yours and Simon Rodia's. You're most welcome. How can our listeners learn more about I Build the Tower? Well, uh, the film has a website, and I would suggest that they go to their computers and on the Internet go to www. I build the tower dot com. That's the title of the film, but all of course, you know, internet language, one word. www dot I build the tower dot com. And if they want to purchase the DVD, can they purchase it directly from that website? How yes, would they do that? Indeed, they can. They can purchase it right through the website. They Wonderful. can also go and visit the Watts Towers, and you'll still find the video uh, on sale, as well as the soundtrack of the film is. Is uh, I mean the music of the film we made it, the music is so wonderful that we made a a, uh, a CD just of the music. Well, coming up in the next few weeks, I will have the director of the Watts Towers. Um, of oh, the art center, Rosie. Rosie Lee Hooks, a wonderful lady. Rosie Lee Hooks, and so I think that'll be a fascinating uh, interview as well. Oh, it will indeed. Thank you so much again. Come back soon. I look forward to that, Arlene. Bye-bye. Thank you. Be good. Please join me again next week on Wednesday, March 25th, 5 p.m. Pacific. The Pretzel Effect. Flexibility is the key to success. My guest will be award-winning journalist Mark A. Davis. Director of Communications for the UCLA Alumni Association, former music columnist for The Advocate and active community volunteer. Drawing on his nearly 20 years of experience at UCLA, Mark will discuss the challenges that came or come with long-term employment his strategies for coping successfully with change, and how he has developed and transferred his skills to welcome new opportunities through organizational changes. Moving your career forward. More than 20 million people are currently unemployed. Every minute, 15 people are losing their jobs. Those who blast their resumes from Burbank to Bombay could remain unemployed for many years because the competition mindset won't work in today's economic environment. Over and over, as the CEO of Barrow Global Search, Inc., I hear the same story. I emailed 100, 300, and even 600 resumes hoping to get interviews. The result is either no response or perhaps a few interviews. The solution is simple. The job seeker must use the right fit method, which is a unique set of strategies to identify the right fit job to convince the employer to interview you and hire you as the one right fit candidate at the salary that you want. To learn more about my right fit method, visit winwithoutcompeting.com and read excerpts from Win, which was nominated for a Business Book Award. To purchase Win, click on the Buy page and select the Right Fit Bookseller for you. Interested in finding out about my nationwide coaching services conducted by phone? Visit drbarrow.com. That's D-R-B-A-R-R-O dot com or winwithoutcompeting.com. To speak with me directly, call 310-441-5305. 
310-441-5305. Master the Right Fit Method and here you're hired. Strategy and Support Seminars. Do you live in the greater Los Angeles area? Then please join me for an in-person Saturday or Sunday afternoon seminar on the west side of Los Angeles. To find out more, email me at drbarro at winwithoutcompeting.com and explain why you need to approach your job search in a new way. Space is limited, currently selecting participants for May. I look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, remember this trigger tip. It's all up to you to change your career and your life. Goodbye for now. This is Dr. Arlene, author, Win Without Competing, Career Coach One, and founder and CEO, Barrow Global Search, Inc.